I'm Tim Story, CEO of the National Conference of State Legislatures. This is our podcast, Legislatures, the Inside Story. Today we're going to learn what it means to work with political adversaries under extraordinarily tough circumstances, work that ended one of the world's most enduring conflicts of the last century between Unionists and Irish Republicans in Northern Ireland. In many ways, the English and Irish had been fighting for centuries, a conflict that had evolved into constant hostility, mostly in the north of Ireland, that too often involved horrible acts of terrorism. The seemingly never-ending violence came to be known as the Troubles. That all ended when my guest, then Irish Prime Minister, known as the Tisha, Bertie Ahern, signed the historic Good Friday Agreement with then-British Prime Minister Tony Blair on April 10th of 1998, 24 years ago. Their work brought together people who literally had been at arms against each other and got them to agree on a peace plan that holds nearly 25 years later. We are also joined by the current president of the Senate of Ireland, Mark Daly, the founder of the Irish American Legislators Caucus and a dear friend of NCSL. It's my terrific honor to have them as guests today. Tisha Ahern and Senator Daly, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much and delighted to to join you and uh, delighted to uh, link up with state legislators are so important to the whole political system. Appreciate that. Thanks for having me on. It's a, it's a great privilege and an honor to be doing the podcast. And I, I've met some of your state legislators at the NCSL Summit in Florida, and we met some of them when they came to visit Ireland. We hope to see more of them coming over in the near future. We are going to drop this podcast on April the 10th, which is a monumental day in, in Irish history. It was the, the, the day that the Good Friday Agreement was signed. Um, and uh, Tisha Ahern, you know, you have, you've had a 40, more than four decade career in public service. But, you know, obviously this was uh, perhaps the pinnacle achievement. Start us off with, you're looking back now, almost 25 years What's your thoughts on it and put it in perspective, you know, 25 years after the, the the agreement that ended certainly decades of hostilities, if not centuries of hostilities? What are your thoughts? Yeah, it, it, it was it was the big the big event of, of, of my career. I've been engaged and involved in lots of things and lots of negotiations and all kind of political activities and, you know, internationally and and, and, and domestically. But. That was the biggest, and because from the time I I was young, um, and certainly from the time I was uh, leaving high school, the trouble started. The trouble started in in sixty eight. Of course, it, that was at the eight hundred anniversary of the troubles. Right. <laughs> but yeah. uh, but um, in more current times, that was the uh, that that was the uh, the start of it. And you know, it, it had gone on nonstop. You know, all the way from sixty eight. And every year it just seemed to get worse. Sometimes there was peaks and valleys of of, of bloodshed, but you know overall it, it, it was a it was a, a terrible uh, thirty years. So, and um, to to be involved in bringing an end to that, negotiating that with with Tony Blair and um, with the parties involved in Northern Ireland, and I suppose there were two phases of it. The tenth of April was the the finalization of, of the negotiations, which had gone on for since the previous September. Uh, so it was practically nonstop negotiations, as any peace process is. It, it's it's fairly torturous uh, stuff. Uh, the decision we had made at the time, we, we took kind of an ambitious go. We, we reckon we had one go at it um, because of other demands and pressures. Uh, Tony Blair and I, and he, he was busier than I because 
you know, UK is a big country, but we, we, we said we'd give it one shot and we had worked in opposition uh, together um, saying that if we did get into government, we would have one big effort at, at, at doing this. So we knew really you, you couldn't continue to give it the time commitments. We did those negotiations from September right through the winter of 97, 98 uh, gave us an opportunity. And we decided to go for a comprehensive agreement to try to deal with all of the issues and without uh, boring your audience, I suppose the simple version of that uh, was that there was a relationship within Northern Ireland where most of the trouble was. Then there was the relationship between the parties in Northern Ireland and the government of the Republic of Ireland. And then the third one was the relationship between the government of Ireland and, and the Republic and the British government. All three were broken uh, and had been broken for generations. Really, the negotiations were, were three separate set of negotiations. The first ones were the parties within the North. We were peripheral to that, but you know they had to get together. We obviously worked closely with them. Then the second one was the important one to us as, as Republicans, as Irish Republicans, uh, to make sure that we got a new relationship um, with the parties in the North uh, and ourselves. And then third one was to try to deal uh, with the fairly bad relationship we had with the British government o- over the time. So, you know, the, the, it was around those three areas. And then we included all of the issues, the prisoners, because it was thousands of prisoners in jail, and um, the decommissioning of arms, because it was a huge amount of arms, and then dealing with the equality of agenda and the criminal justice, the new justice system. So as well as reforming the police, which were not, even those who people who were opposed to violence on the nationalist side, the Republican side, were not very enamored with the old police force. So we had to reform the police force. So it, it was a very comprehensive agreement. Yeah, and I think it has a, a place in sort of the pantheon of uh, negotiated settlements because of the, you know, like you said, centuries of tension and hostilities. Stakes were incredibly high. People were dying. Passions were deep. There's there's religious elements to it. So, you know, people uh, have great, strong passions about it. So have you reflected on it? Because you know, I'm thinking about ne- ne- legislators having to negotiate. That's their life. Usually the stakes aren't uh, at that kind of level. But, you know, what are the, when, when you look back at it, was there any kind of magic to it? Was it just grinding it out? I mean, I'm interested by the fact you said we just committed to staying in the room and working and working and working. I think that's what I kind of heard you say. What was the key, the core of getting it done at the end of the day, now with 25 years to reflect on it? In any set of negotiations, particularly peace processes, and now 25 years on, I've been involved in many of them in different countries, but there, there are a few things. The first thing is that the parties involved in negotiations must believe that the status quo uh, is not tenable. Uh, if people believe that the status quo is fine and that going on killing people is fine, then there's not much room for negotiation. So I think that's the first one. The second one is to try, you know, get an understanding. What are the items that are the, are the cause of the conflict? What are the underlying reasons for the conflict? Uh, and then to try and get the parties to, to start to understand each other. That's the hard bit because often people in negotiations, they, they come in very hard with their own sense of their position and their viewpoints. And they're not really serious about trying to find solutions. 
So it's it's to try and convince that convince people, you know, that moving a bit here, a bit there, uh, trying to find a small compromise will help you, your argument with your own people. And there is always that sense of people feeling um, that you know they they can't move that. They, they'd be betraying their own people if, if they move a bit. So uh, I think that there so is to try and get a bit of trust. Like if everyone st- stands to their own position, you'll never get anywhere. So it's to try and get enough of trust and confidence that people are prepared to, to give a bit, move a bit. And that can be only done by trying to improve the relationships, trying to you know get the circumstances of the talks right now. Of course, it's never perfect, uh, as as we all know. I mean, there are ups and downs. You get good days and you get terrible days. Uh, George Mitchell, who was chair of the talks here, the great George Mitchell, um, who, who you kindly gave us. You know, George Mitchell used to say, you know, we we had eight hundred bad days to have one good one good day. I think you have to be prepared to do that. And of course, people lose their heads and they lose their temper and they say things maybe they would regret. So I think it, 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 it's, it's for us guys who are running the talks is, is to try and, you know, keep a sense of, of what the big picture is here uh, and to take the blows and take the hits and, you know, keep going. So I think that there, so that, that the magic, I suppose, is, is, is to try to keep that, you know, sense of understanding that it, this is difficult for everybody and that if we all give a bit and take a bit, because in the end of negotiations, if there's a loser, if, if there's a loser and someone loses badly, then uh, it doesn't work. So you almost have to get a stage that everybody is a winner so that the compromises balance each other as best you can, or at least presentationally, you, you must keep it that way. And I think looking back on it, we managed to do that with, with great difficulty, may I add, but we, we managed to to have a sense where 25 years on, more or less what we negotiated uh, is still the way it is. You know, people people haven't changed that much, bit of tweaking here and there. I do want to ask about the, something specific you said there. This notion of everybody has to accept that the status quo cannot continue, that, that it's untenable. Now, people, there is a strain of politics in, in the States as well as I'm sure in in uh, in Ireland and then and in Europe, that compromise is somehow failure. That you have, if you compromise, it's it's. Uh, and I and I'd like Mark to talk about this as well. It, it, you know how do when when somehow there's people who are just like we'll, we will never compromise, but that's the only way to move forward because the status quo is untenable. We had a you know the great Dr. Dean Paisley who you know was a one of the formidable politicians and religious leaders in Northern Ireland, but not only him, but back from the 1920s, uh, you had Carson and, you know, other religious leaders, and they they always had this no surrender. It is that position in any negotiations. If if people go in believing they must win and the others must lose, I think you have to, you have to create the conditions, particularly in peace things, peace work in that, listen, people have been killed every day. Innocent people have been killed. Enormous amount of damage has been done. You know, and at one, at one stage, Northern Ireland is a relatively small place, but at one stage there was about 60,000 people in, in on the security budget, you know, to try and keep peace. So, you know, it, 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 if you were 
if, if you want to, you have to convince people, well, listen, there must be another way. Because if you believe the way of keeping it going is to spend these hundreds of millions and billions on security and people are still being killed, people are still being blown up, property has been damaged, economy is wrecked, no tourists, no investment. So it, it's to create that sense that, listen, there, there is another way. And, um, you know, when you see Northern Ireland today, like as we 24 years on, huge amount of tourism, huge center for filmmaking from all over the world, fantastic inward investment from the United States and, you know, Canada and elsewhere. You know, so you know, these things that we, we try to explain at the time where people maybe didn't really believe it would happen, have happened. And I think that's, that's, that's the, that's the, the sense of where you, you have to try to create the, the picture and hope that, that people will buy into that picture. Now, listen, it's easier said than done, as we all know, but uh, there, there, there is that, you know, building confidence. And I suppose Mark is a younger guy than I, and he's, he's watched and he's watched young people how they've changed in the North. So maybe Mark, you can give a good perspective on that. Thanks, Bertie. And like, I mean, what you've listened to there is a masterclass in, in negotiation. And um, what Bertie also was involved in is making sure that the United States was involved through Senator George Mitchell and successive U.S. administrations uh, and successive U.S. presidents who have all been uh, supportive on a bipartisan basis on Capitol Hill with Congressman Richie Neal and Senator King and others uh, who have been involved, but also state legislators who have been supportive of uh, all attempts to get peace. And I think, you know, peace is a process. It's not a destination. The the events of uh, 24 years ago um, was only the beginning of a journey. It was a long, torturous journey to get to the point where there was peace negotiated, but also this the, the peace process, and it's called a process because it's still ongoing, and the support of the United States has been very important over the last 24 years. When things became difficult and and uh, things got stuck um, the US as a, an honest broker was able to come in and say we're friends with Ireland we're friends with the United Kingdom and we'd like them both to you know work these things out which they have done and like things like you know Northern Ireland is different now because things like the Game of Thrones was filmed in Northern Ireland something that was unimaginable 24 years ago but bringing all the parties together and and you talked about the issue of compromise what was what was able to happen with Bertie's leadership and the leadership of others uh, and Prime Minister from the United Kingdom, Tony Blair, uh, was that it wasn't a case of a sense of if you win, I lose, and if I win, you lose. It was accommodating people's desires and needs, but also recognizing that in any negotiation, there has to be uh, an, an element of compromise, but you also come away with what you want as well. So I think that was one of the great parts about the Good Friday Agreement, but it is important that we recognize that we need ongoing support in terms of making sure that the peace is maintained because it's 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 very fragile uh, and it, it can never be taken for granted. I, I have been fortunate to work with parliaments all over the world and get to know, you know, politicians, elected officials, public officials, public servants. And I'm always curious because I feel like there's something that they have in common, which is, why did you get into this business? You were elected to the Senate in uh, 07, is that right? One of the youngest members uh, elected to the Senate. Why, why did you decide to get into that? Why did you decide to run for office? 
I suppose like everybody gets involved in public life and public service because they want to make a difference and everybody can make a difference. And if everybody works together to make that small bit of a difference, you, then you can truly change uh, the way your country or your community goes forward. And nobody better than Bertie Arontag, she is the embodiment of, you know, using public office and public service as a way of changing the outcomes of, you know, not only Northern Ireland, but the whole island of Ireland uh, and people are alive today because of his work uh, in the Good Friday Agreement and the peace process uh, and working with others and people who at one stage, and Bertie talked to this, in the negotiations, they wouldn't even sit in the same room. Like literally it was shuttle diplomacy that you had the Democratic Unionist Party wouldn't sit in the same room as Sinn Féin and they literally had to go from one part to the other. And there was these things that I only learned about a few years ago called angel documents, where these ideas that were that didn't have any uh, origin, they weren't uh, allocated to any particular group or party or any government, and they were just put on the table and they were said, like, what do you think of these ideas? Because they knew that if one party thought it came from the other side, they'd reject it, and vice versa. So there was a lot of, you know, very imaginative thinking uh, in the negotiations and you know hopefully uh, in the years ahead uh, we'll see more progress in relation to the issues in Northern Ireland. Bernie I, I want to ask you the same thing do you can you go back into the way back machine to the 1960s I guess when you were like I'm going to run for office I want to be part of this and did you ever think that your legacy would be as substantial as it was when you were just this kid and what made you run? Yeah, I, I think probably most people get involved, as Mark said, they, they want to make a difference. But you probably start off with wanting to make a difference in your own local community. I think you, you see things in your own local community around sport and youth facilities and maybe some better amenities for, for, for everybody, playgrounds for kids. And, you know, they were the kind of small but very important things that, that, that attracted me into political life. And then I think we were, we're Irish Republicans and we come from a, you know, an Irish Republican tradition of, of being nationalists and being very uh, wedded to, 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 to the country and to how our country should be shaped. So I think they were dead. I think Mark and I come from different ends of the country, but uh, I think most of our people all over the country would be of a, of a nationalist persuasion. I mean, we the the northern issue, the unification of the island, the relationship with Britain, uh, were all are all the issues that kind of uh, united us as 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 young young people, men and women joining. So many of of our people went to the United States, as so much. So we all grew up having relations in the United States, and I think it's been hugely important to to us as a small island and of course we think we're the most important place in the world like every country does but you know we're we're a small place we're a small dot on the on the map we're stuck between uh, Europe and out into the Atlantic and uh, I think it's um I mean that special relationship we have with the United States today and every day has been so important to us I mean I was lucky enough uh, to, to to work and have very close relationship with with both Bill Clinton and George Bush, uh, both of them were were truly good friends. Both of them were massively supportive to us. We, you know, we we never got into 
uh, the distinction of Republicans and Democrats from an Irish point of view. Uh, we, 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 we still do to this day uh, appreciate their interest and their concern and their, their work with us. And, you know, if, if I have one aim and one ambition, it's that that continues. I mean, we there's not a state in America where we don't want support and interest in, in the Irish cause. We, we have a lot of work still to, to do, you know, to build that relationship. And it, it's, it's the connection with the United States has helped us so much. One last thing on, on the Good Friday Agreement, because we can't ignore the fact that this is this anniversary and coming up on a quarter century of that. I, I was struck by how legislative negotiation, negotiators are often dealing with someone on the other side. You, you might go in with Tony Blair and get along swimmingly with him or not and find that, that it was, was it sometimes harder to negotiate back with your own team than it was to negotiate with the British. In negotiations, in my experience is whether it's dealing with employers and farmers, trade unions, or whether it's dealing with political parties, you you have to be watching all of the all of the angles. I think it's a bit like when you're as as I was for a long time as leader of my party, but you you have to lead your party, but you have to lead the government, and you have to be watching everything. If you only do one bit of it, the other bit suffers. So I think it's it's hugely important. Uh, and not easily done. And what we did is just as a matter of historical record, uh, as we went through the negotiations, and particularly the last three months, um, I sat down with my key people and with our party elected officials, and we explained to them where we were, where we thought we'd move, where we could move. And, and so, so we, when we had to change our constitution, which was a big thing for us to to remove the jurisdiction that we claimed over Northern Ireland. It could only be done by carrying the party with me. And if I had to jump that up on the last day and said, well, I'm going to agree this tomorrow, then that would have been war. So I, I think the, the thing to do is to carry people with you, to sit down with them. I used to do it on Sunday, Sunday mornings, where you, when you would have liked to have a rest after a long week. Well, to go back to your own people uh, and with the keeper and answer their questions. And invariably, they come up with very good questions, you know, questions which you must address and you then you must go back into negotiations on Monday and, and, and continue this. So if I can say so, looking back on a, a long career in this, I, I see a lot of politicians, they make the mistake of dealing with one aspect or maybe two aspects, but you have to do it across the totality of relationships. And if you don't... Um, you know, the one you ignore will bite you eventually. But we didn't have any of our elected members who left us because of the agreement. You know, that, that's something I think not just me, but all, all of our colleagues in negotiation are very proud of. My memory is, you know, it was put to a vote of the people, right? And the people somewhat overwhelmingly passed the, the agreement, you know, endorsed the agreement. Yeah, in, the, in, in our jurisdiction, in the, in the Republic of Ireland, 95% of people that's, supported that's the agreement. Well, that, that is, it, it's remarkable. And we'll stand as one of the remarkable achievements of the 20th century. And, and um, I, I, forgive me, I got to tell one quick story. You were talking about the relationships between Americans and the Irish. And um, so about 20 years ago, uh, my sister and I, we, we sent my mom and dad, who my mom had never been out of the country, which my dad was in the service. We sent them to Ireland, you know, because we have strong, I'm, I'm Irish, we have strong ties to Ireland. 
And my mom comes back and she's showing us her pictures back then. You know, they were actual pieces of paper when you looked at pictures. And she shows us, you know, a castle in the ocean and all this stuff. And then there's just this picture of a pile of rocks next to a stream. And, and I, I'm like, Mom, you know, why why did you take a picture of a pile of rocks next to a stream? And that Oliver Cromwell, I can't stand him. I hate him. And I'm like, Mom, that was 500 years ago. <laughs> you know, it's, it's uh, but but uh, she was so Irish in the moment. She was so, because apparently he had destroyed this pile of rocks bridge over this stream at some point, or at least that's the that's the legacy. And and so I just love that story. I think there are many Americans who will always be Irish and, and relate to Ireland in a special way. Cromwell is a rather fond figure in uh, in London, um, but yes. um, it, it, in Ireland we have a slightly different view. Yes, <laughs> I understand. And my mom was all on board with that. It took her like uh, one day to appreciate uh, what side she was was going with on that. Hey, let me ask you, Mark. Speaking of Irish and American ties, I know you claim that an ancestor or a, one a, you're a descendant of a, of a guy named John Sullivan, who was Speaker of the New Hampshire House of Representatives, uh, something that's near and dear to our hearts. Legislatures have been on this continent for 400 years. Um, New Hampshire uh, General Court, as it was called, is one of the oldest, uh, one of the oldest uh, legislatures in the U.S. And so you had a Speaker of the House in New Hampshire uh, among your family, Mark. Uh, so you obviously have some Strong ties. Also fought in the Revolutionary War for American independence. Yeah, that's more important, like, because he was with General Sullivan at the crossing of the Delaware when the American War of Independence was in the balance. And I want to thank you, Tim, and the NCSL for helping with the establishment of the American Irish State Legislators Caucus, because we started a year ago on, and there was four states that had Irish caucuses, and we now have leadership in all 50 states. And what we found out was that while there's one in 10 U.S. citizens who have Irish heritage, actually one in five state legislators of Irish heritage, and as you know, one in two U.S. presidents of Irish heritage. Um, but, you know, I think it's it's grown from strength to strength. Uh, we're looking forward to welcoming you here in July. And next year, we're hoping that we'll have a lot of uh, the state legislators from the various uh, caucuses over here for the Notre Dame versus Navy game. But like as Bertie said about diplomacy, and that's why this relationship with the United States is so important to Ireland, diplomacy is a contact sport, like politics is a contact sport. Uh, and it's about relationships and it's about people uh, so that you, when you can lift up the phone and say, we need your help, they know who you are, they know that they can trust you. Bertie Ahern, uh, I don't know, will he, he, he might allow me to tell this story. And if you can edit it out, you might have to edit it out. But he, in the negotiations with... Uh, the unionist side, who would not be very trusting of the Irish government, one of their negotiators was elderly and would start falling asleep during the during the afternoon session after the dinner and you know after the lunch, and it was Bertie would call for a break, knowing that his opponent was you know just elderly and therefore negotiations would take a bit of time, and that he was getting he was just uh, of his age. And he would be the one looking for the break and say, hey, you know what, I think, would it be all right if we just took a break? And they appreciated it. They knew it was for the other guy, but they appreciated it. And they, those small gestures mean a lot. And that's why, you know, when we talk about the relation between Ireland and the United States, that's why we're so grateful for the NCSL uh, in helping with the establishment of the American Irish State Legislators Caucus, which is open to everybody. It's not just people who have Irish heritage, but people who are supporters of Ireland, 
public representatives here so that we look forward to welcoming them over for St. Patrick's Day here and obviously our members going over there for St. Patrick's Day, but also for the 4th of July because the 4th of July, obviously, the 2026 is the 250th anniversary of the American Declaration of Independence and seven people of Irish heritage signed the American Declaration of Independence. Uh, 40% of George Washington's army had Irish heritage and when the war was lost, Lord Mountjoy in the British Parliament said, we have lost America to the Irish. Um, so that our relationship goes back a long, long, long way. Uh, and we will look forward to extending and continuing and growing that relationship into the future through the American-Irish State Legislators Caucus, but through uh, all, the, all the great relationships we have with the United States of America. We, we, we sure are grateful as well. And I, I will say I love that story because, you know, what I want this podcast to be is like takeaways, take homes and this notion of never underestimate the small gestures. I think that's something that every legislator should have on their mind, that little things matter um, when you can reach out to the other side and, and just do things to help them pay attention to the little things. So that's a great story. And, and uh, yeah, Mark, we sure do appreciate you. Tisha Ahern, anything else you'd, you'd give advice or... Uh, of course, as we wrap up, the one thing I, I, I would like to say that, you know, we, we were a country where uh, a small country because of not just the famine, but, you know, economic circumstances right up until the 1950s. Uh, people emigrated mainly to the, to the United States. But what we now would like to, 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 to see from the United States perspective, with their help, you know, it's now why most of the big you know american multinational companies in information communication technologies medical supplies pharmaceuticals are now in ireland and are now exporting all over the world Pr- practically i think most of the top 10 drugs used in the world are manufactured in ireland with american uh, investment we we never underestimate uh, the true friendship we have and you know I think what we need to do more than anything else, and it, it is, I say this because it, not just on the flattery side or to be nice about it, but what, what we need is for the next generation, the generations come behind us, that that connection with America remains. Maybe not because of the success of our economy, with your help, our people don't have to go abroad. Uh, so, but we have to build that relationship and it's deeply appreciated you know, in this country, the, the help and the assistance. But I, I'd like to keep it. Not it, it's not about money. It, it, it's 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 not about power of companies. But it's about the relationship and the friendship that has been so important to to Ireland for hundreds of years, and that we continue to build that. And we build it in every part of America. It's not just Boston where we were traditionally strong, but that we build it everywhere. Well, yeah, you you can sort of count on NCSL because I think. You touched on it. That's this continuing the the relationships through the next generation and the next generation, and and we we have a really strong foundation for that. So I'm I'm very optimistic about that. So honored, Kahirla Daly, uh, president of the Senate, and uh, Tisha Ahern. Um, genuinely uh, grateful for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tim. My guests today were former Irish Prime Minister Bertie Ahern who signed the historic Good Friday Agreement with British Prime Minister Tony Blair in 1998, and Senate President Mark Daly of the Irish Senate. If you're interested in joining the Irish American State Legislators Caucus, 
Senator that, that Senator Daly mentioned during the podcast, you can find out more on our website. Type in NCSL Inside Story, and that's S-T-O-R-E-Y Story. This is Legislatures, the Inside Story from the National Conference of State Legislatures, and I'm Tim Story. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We encourage you to review and rate NCSL Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or Spotify. We also encourage you to check out our other podcasts, Our American States, and the special series, Building Democracy.